Welcome to Hot Topics in Kidney Health, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation. Each episode, we highlight the latest in kidney research, bring you up-to-date news in kidney care, dispel myths, and answer your kidney health questions. If you have two healthy kidneys, you may be able to donate one to improve or even save someone else's life. Many potential living donors have questions, such as what does the journey look like, and how do you know if you're eligible to donate? If you're one of them, this podcast is for you. On today's episode, our panel will share the firsthand experience of being a living donor and walk you through the evaluation process. Hello, my name is Jennifer Bruins, and we're going to be talking today about deciding to become a living donor. In addition to having been a living donor, I've worked in the kidney field for over 20 years in the fields of dialysis social work, transplant social work, and now doing inpatient acute nephrology. I have my master's degree from the University of Minnesota um, and have been a social worker for 25 years, which kind of hard to believe it's been that long. So I became a living donor to my husband in November of 2004. It was a laparoscopic donation, which is the common way to do donation now. And I would like to introduce my two podcast participants, Tanya and Miriam, are with me here today. So um, if you both would like to share uh, when you donated your kidney and who you donated to, let's start with Tanya. Thanks, Jen. Hi, I'm Tanya, and I donated my kidney in August 2014 to my father. That's my story. What about you, Miriam? Um, I donated my kidney last April, so it's almost been exactly a year, to an anonymous recipient. So I don't know who got my kidney. I haven't met them, and they don't know anything about them except that my kidney worked for them (laughs) in April of last year. So fingers crossed it's still working. And it actually was a paired exchange. So I donated through the National Kidney Registry, and I think I'm pretty sure that my donation also facilitated one other donation. So a lot of the people that are listening to this episode are probably curious about the living donor process, and they might be on the fence about their decision to donate. And maybe hearing some stories from other people who have been through it could help them make a more informed decision. So starting with Tanya, can you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to be a donor, what the process was like, and how long it took you from starting the evaluation process to the surgery? So my my motivation was obviously my father who was going through, um, you know, in stage renal disease. And so my sister and I, once he heard from the um, center for, I think it was Ohio State Medical Center, that he was a good candidate, my sister and I both um said that we would do it. And he was like, Oh, no, I can't ask that of you. Like, you know, he's pushed back a lot. But we're just like, you know, your life is more important. And we really want to do this. So once uh, we all had a family discussion with our mom, and everyone, we agreed to move forward with the process. And my sister and I both, um, you know, submitted, but we're different blood types. So it was actually a paired exchange also for us. And uh, the the process, uh, I think it took about a year altogether. So I was living in New York City at the time, and then my dad was at Ohio. So then, you know, I would do go to LabCorp, submit blood, uh, you know, off and on here and there just to get all the testing to make everything good to go. And then the whole evaluation process to surgery, 
I, I think it was like a whole year because I think we we started the conversation in uh, maybe mid 2013 and then the surgery happened in uh, August of 2014 and so then once everything was good to go I had the orientation with the transplant center at Ohio State and Ohio State Medical the surgical team the two main surgeons who do nephrectomy came and spoke with all of us and did the EKG test and the CAT scan and and all those fun exams of getting blood drawn and you know all the blood drawn I think I've uh, it was a lot of fun to go through that I no longer have a big fear of needles so that's one positive that came through that and uh, and yeah so that's the whole process that went through it for me what about you too, Jen and Miriam. I'm curious how your process went. So I probably had a rather selfish motivation because it was my husband. We had two young children at the time, and I was very motivated to get my husband well and back to work. So, but also he was on dialysis for a brief time and um, was trying to work full time and raise two kids. And so it, it was it was really the best option for us to have a more normal life. Initially, we were looking at my husband has three brothers and we were looking at his brothers to try and um, be the donors. But one brother had borderline blood sugar. The other brother was just reluctant to do it. And his third brother uh, was not medically a candidate. So I decided I actually had a dream one night that I should do this. So I decided to to test to see if I was a donor. I, I had been a blood donor, so I knew I was O. So I was a universal donor. And so I tested and we were compatible. And so actually the process when I decided to donate was rather quick. It was just a few months, probably between the the end of testing to surgery was about two months. So the whole process was only about three or four months, which was was quick. What about you, Miriam? It wasn't a very long process, honestly. It was probably six months from start to finish. So I kind of filled out the online form in November of 2020, and things kind of moved really quickly from there. So I you know, got a call right away that said, we need to do this online conversations about, you know, are you really suitable to be a donor? So one thing that was sort of unique or maybe not unique, but it was something that was particular to me was that I was really worried that I wouldn't be able to be a living donor because I have a mental health history of anxiety and depression. And so I had actually asked around through my job at NKF, you know, is that something that will rule me out? Am I still going to be able to be a living donor? And so the social worker at the transplant center just took a little bit more time to talk through with me, like, what is your history? You know, do you have like good coping mechanisms in place? Like, are you kind of getting consistent care from a therapist and a psychiatrist? And so I think that part of the process took a little bit more time. And I ended up talking as well to the psychiatrist that was affiliated with the transplant center. So I actually really appreciated that they did so much due diligence to make sure that I would be safe and that, you know, this wouldn't harm my mental health in any way. So that was just sort of a unique component of the process for me that in talking to other living donors, they haven't sort of gone through that much um, evaluation. Like that was unique to me. Um, But the medical part, so I think it took about 12 weeks to hear back from the transplant center, you know, yes, you know, you're a candidate, you can move forward. And then the medical part of the process didn't take very long at all. So I was able to do it in just one full day at uh, Georgetown which is, I, I live in DC. And so I, you know, was able to just like kind of spend a morning at Georgetown having a ton of blood. <laughs> and um, 
and doing the the CT scan with contrast. And so, yeah, I, you know, it was, um, I think the hardest thing about the process for me was that I really wanted to be a living donor and I was really scared that I would be ruled out. And um, even after I had sort of gone through, you know, and talked to the you know, center so many times, like when I was waiting for the medical results, you know, I was like, oh, I'm not going to be able to do it. I'll be so heartbroken. And I interact with a lot of nephrologists through my job. And so I was like constantly sending them my lab results. And I was like, something is wrong with me. I won't be able to be a living donor. And we're like, you need to relax. You're fine. Um, so yeah, I think it was probably six months from start to finish. So yeah, November, 2020 to April, 2021. That's a very common theme I've heard from, um, both when I used to do living donor evaluations and just from people talking to people is the, the fear that you would be ruled out because you're so desperate to do it either to help a loved one or a friend or like you, um, Miriam, just wanting to give that gift. And I think that's a common fear. Also, I think it was interesting how you said you were worried that you'd be ruled out. I think that's, you know, I think one of the the things that transplant centers um, really do is they really are quite critical in making sure that it's the best decision for the donor to to donate. I feel like having worked in transplant for 13 years and watching it from the other side, I know the doctors took it and the whole team took the health of the donor very seriously. And sometimes that meant the donor had to maybe lose weight or do something to make themselves, or, you know, like with you, make sure that you're cleared from a mental health perspective, but um, donor health and safety, I think is one of the biggest concerns transplant teams have. That That's so true, Jen, because I, I know for me, like that's something that was reiterated during my process too, since I went with my sister and then they just like pretty much reiterated to us, like they want to make sure that the donor is better, you know, is not worse off after doing the um, donation surgery. And I, I like what you mentioned, Miriam, about, you know, the support services provided by transplant centers, because even at Ohio State, they did a really good job with like, you know, psychological support, because for me, I'm originally from Congo, and there's a lot of, you know, stigmas about health and even like organ donation. And that was something I would think about because nobody really understands it. So we've, and I think that's the reason too, why I've started to be more involved as a um, mentor and just with National Kidney Foundation because there shouldn't be a stigma about organ donation because it's really helping a loved one out and it could really help our community and like other communities that have that nervousness about discussing organ donation and oh what does it mean and you know like there's so much so much technology and like it's so much better like the positives outweigh any negatives that there are when it comes to organ donation. So I'm so grateful for the services provided because it helped to calm my fears and anxieties too that I had about, oh, how will it be and this and that and how will my life be afterwards? Yeah, I remember too being really surprised by some of the questions that they asked, you know, during the evaluation, like, you know, how are you going to feel if you donate a kidney to somebody and it doesn't work? Or, you know, how are you going to feel if, you know, you donate a kidney and the person that you donate to, you know, isn't doing everything that they can to take care of it. And those were things that I really hadn't thought about going into the process at all. And so it was really helpful to be prompted to think about some of those other things. And I mean, ultimately, I don't really know what happened to my kidney. So it just 
wasn't something that ended up being that important. But I could imagine that that really does play a big role in how you feel after the donation. Yeah, you have to you have to accept the fact that once you release that kidney, it's not your kidney anymore and you don't really have a say in how it's handled. It's it is a it is a big leap of faith and it's a it's a lot of trust whether you're donating to someone you know or someone you don't know. You're just assuming that you know you're giving this gift and it, everything will go wonderfully, but you know, it doesn't always work out that way, but you have to be prepared for that. And I'm glad they addressed that with you because that's a really important thing to consider. Tanya, you kind of brought this up in your last response, but how did you go about telling the people in your life that you were considering donating the kidney and how did they react? It was pretty much just my family, you know, my immediate family, my mother, father, and sister, because it's just, you know, the four of us that came here to America together. So we've got our own little unit. So, and then I, I told, um, I had a, I was working at like a, a company called United Hospital Fund at the time. And my manager, her mother had gone through kidney disease. So I, I let her know because, you know, I would be out for an amount of time. I was even nervous about that because I'm like, oh, they're going to think, oh, it's just like growing up with, I think, immigrant mentality of like, you can't take any days off of work. So if, if you're like, I got to take time off of work to donate a kidney, they'll be like, really? <laughs> but she was really supportive. And she actually connected me with a friend of hers because I think she did volunteer work or supported NKF since her mother had kidney disease. So she connected me with another man, Rick, who gave his kidney to his wife in the 80s. And he kind of became my mentor through it all. Like, although his surgery would be completely different than mine, because in the 80s, it was a much larger surgery that would take, you know, I, I'm not even sure how it was. I remember te him telling me, but I just took that out of my ear because it just sounds like such a big surgery. So for me, thankfully, it was laparoscopic. So he connected me with another young woman in the same boat as me because I believe she was Persian. And it was the same kind of thing she was going through just with the cultural of like, don't talk about your health kind of mindset. But I think having um, the, that support system like with actual people who have gone through it and then another one who's going through the cultural thing that helped and then my boss was super supportive and like let everyone in the company know and they and when I went to have surgery they they called me on the day and like sent me a care package afterwards and then like my close friends too came and supported me and former co-workers so I had a good support system but I didn't share it like publicly and I think both of you have mentioned that you haven't really talked too much about it too because we did it kind of out of duty it wasn't like out of like oh you know that's the first thing to know about me but I think with just how we see so many people waiting for kidneys nowadays and like how important organ donation is now it's an important time to to share it but for the most part the response was good my parents of course you know kind of nervous about it because it's a it's a big surgery you know and so I think they just were more nervous but didn't want to express it too much because it would maybe add anxiety to my thoughts about it and the day of the surgery but um my sister too was supportive i think it's just like with that cultural difference like growing up here in america it's more like oh, okay we can do it like my sister was like that but my parents are just like the nervousness of such a big thing and not understanding it but i'd say for the most part it was positive um what about you miriam yeah, it was mixed, actually, I would say. So I I mean, there were a lot of, a surprising number of people in my life who were, who were sort of like, why, why would you do that? And I 
was really grateful for the community that I have at like through my friends at the National Kidney Foundation and through like the volunteers that we work with at NKF, which span, you know, patients and professionals and all kinds of different people that, that work and live in sort of like kidney world, um, who were super supportive of me throughout the entire process and honestly continue to be really supportive of me as I've gone through this first year of recovery. Um, and it was really important for me to have people like from kidney world who didn't need me to explain why I was doing this. And one of the first people that I told was my dear friend, Derek Forfang, who's a patient advocate with the National Kidney Foundation. And he just understood, you know, he instinct, I mean, obviously like he's a kidney transplant recipient, but he just, he just understood why I wanted to do it and why it was important to me. And I think my, my friends and my family, they did come around and some of them were really supportive from the get go. But I think, I think if you haven't seen what dialysis can be like and what waiting on the kidney transplant can, list can be like, it does seem like a little bit of a bananas thing to do, right? But to me, like, I know these people, like, I love these people, you know, I, and I, it was so easy to decide. I mean, it just like, it costs me so little and somebody else will, you know, be able to be untethered from a dialysis machine. I mean, that is huge. So I think, um, yeah, it was, I, I was sort of, it was surprisingly, surprisingly mixed. Um, but everyone did, did eventually come around and was really, 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 you know, kind and supportive. And I just, especially my, my friends and my colleagues from NKF world and kidney worlds were just so loving and kind and, it meant the world to me that, that they were all there for me and just, you know, were there to answer my questions and, you know, there to look at my lab results and, you know, answer my weird medical questions before and after the procedure. But yeah, it is, it is interesting in that it continues to be really hard to talk about being a living donor. And I saw a quote somewhere that said that, when you tell people that you're a living donor, they either think that you're out of your mind or they think you're a saint. And I don't want to be either of those things. Like, I just want to be a, a person who, you know, did this one thing among the many other things that I'll do in my life. Right. You know, I'm not like, I'm just a fallible person. Like I'm capable of making mistakes and, you know, being imperfect. And so I, I think that's why, that's partly why it's really hard because there are a, like a lot of misconceptions, I think, about the kind of people that become living donors. Like we're just humans. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think that's a really good quote. I never heard that, but I think that makes sense because it, it feels like it's additional pressure that you don't really want or like, don't, I just did it, you know, like, let's move on <laughs> kind of mindset. Yeah, I think the whole idea of altruism is a very foreign concept, I think, as as humans. Um, and to do something that's completely not going to benefit you. Remember the, one of the surgeons I work with saying, it's the one time we do surgery where we bring a healthy person in and we leave them a little bit less healthy. You know, it's the opposite of every other kind of medical intervention where usually you're taking someone into surgery to fix them or, you know, their life better. And this is the one time when 
we don't do that. We take something away from a healthy person. And it's a very foreign concept in both medicine, and I think in humanity, to do something that's completely not going to benefit you. You know, in some ways with Tanya and me, we were helping out a loved one. But Miriam, with you, I mean, it was completely, there, there was zero benefit to you doing it other than this desire to help someone else. And I think, unfortunately, that's just a really rare concept in our, in our culture to just do something that you're going to get no benefit out of whatsoever. Um, you know, when I told people what we were doing, it, it was surprising to me the people that wouldn't even consider doing it that were close to my husband. And, you know, everyone has their reasons and I wouldn't fault them for that. But I, I do think that most people thought it was a little bit crazy because it's like, you know, what I, the common thing I would get because it was my husband and me, you know, what if something happens to you? What's going to happen to your children? And I guess for me, the benefits just outweighed the risks for the reasons to do it. But for the most part, I think the same thing. Once we decided to go through with it, people were very supportive. And I was really shocked at the the outpouring of support we got from our friends and family in terms of just helping us take care of our kids and making sure we had everything we needed. And I had one friend that, you know, brought meals and it was, it was amazing that people felt like, well, I'm not doing the donation, but I will do whatever I can to support you in, in doing it. And I think the same thing, watching my husband go through dialysis, it's just like, if there's something I can do to fix this, um, I tend to be a, a fixer by nature. And so, um, it was like, I just, yeah, same sort of thing. If it's something you can do to help someone else, I just, I don't see why it wouldn't, you wouldn't do it. So Jen, is the process different if someone is looking to donate to someone specifically, or if they want to be an altruistic donor? At least in my experience working on the medical side, the way our center did it was, you know, it's up to the donor to make the first contact. So even if you're donating to a family member or someone you know, the potential donor has to be the one that makes the first call to the center to start the workup process. And the way our center did it, which I'm sure is very similar to other centers, is you know they would do a, a health questionnaire um, over the phone, make sure that a, a person didn't have any conditions that would rule them out from being a donor, and then begin the testing. What our center did, and, and I'm curious, Miriam, to hear how your experience went since you were an anonymous, we used to call it altruistic donor, but the first thing we would do is do a psychological evaluation. And we would do that with every potential anonymous donor to make sure that their, I guess, to make sure that their intentions were pure. Um, and so that part, that was a little different. We would start with the psychological evaluation, whereas with a, a donor who's donating someone they know that usually would come later in the process. Other than that, the rest of the process is similar. Was that similar to your experience, Miriam? Yeah, there was definitely, even on the first, the first time that I met the whole team, everybody was asking, I mean, in a nice way, but why do you want to do this? Yeah. And what's your motivation? I think they were just trying to, you know, understand that I, I wasn't pursuing this because I expected to get something that I was never going to get you know, and that would ultimately harm me. But I think it was really helpful that, you know, my, this is my job, right? Like I work on health policy for the National Kidney Foundation. And so I think that made my motivations more clear. And I wonder if other altruistic or anonymous donors have a different 
experience or even like a harder experience making their motivations known. Yeah, it's still a very rare thing. I mean, in the 13 years I worked in transplant, I think I only had a, a less than five anonymous donors. I know it's changed a bit now with the whole the paired exchanges because that allows like what you went through, Tanya, which is it's it's donating to someone, but there's not necessarily your kidney didn't necessarily go into your father. Like they, it becomes more of a paired. I think that's opened up a lot of options for people. And I think the publicity over that has allowed more people to, to consider now that they're doing these exchanges. It's like, Oh, you know, as opposed to when I started, it was, it was just, you would just donate to the next person on the list. Um, that was a match. Whereas now you could go pretty much to anybody, um, which I think is, you know, opened up some options. And uh, is there is there anything that would rule somebody out from being a living donor? Yes, there are. Um, so there's certain medical conditions that will rule people out if you are diabetic or if you have high blood pressure. High blood pressure is a little different. Different centers have different criteria. When I was in working in transplant, I've been out of the transplant field for about three years now, but you could be con- potentially be considered a donor if you had later diagnosed hypertension on one med they would consider you. Diabetes, pretty much no. And then there's a lot of other conditions that, medical conditions that were maybes. Um, Cancer history, obesity is one where that was a common factor that would rule people out. But again, that factor has changed over time. The weight cutoff has has expanded just like it has for recipients. So that, that would be kind of up to the physician's discretion. And then of course, like you brought up the psychological factors, you know, we want to make sure that people are prepared for that. Also lifestyle factors. You know, if you've got a history of drugs or alcohol, we want to make sure that those, if there's any uh, substance abuse issues, those have been dealt with. And also I did have some donors come forward that it's like their life, their social sort of living situation was so chaotic. It's like, are you sure this is something you want to take on right now? You've got, you know, A, B, and C going on in your life. This is still a stressful situation. No matter how easy the process goes, it's still stressful. And so making sure that people were prepared emotionally to handle it. And if that didn't necessarily mean an automatic rule up, but maybe you need to do X, Y, and Z before we can get you to being a donor. So um, I'd say there's not a lot of hard and fast rule outs, but, um, but some of it may be, okay, let's look at these situations or these need to be worked up more. We're going to send you for this test. It seems like over time too, the factors of what is an automatic rule out are changing. Age is, is another factor. Most centers, you have to be at least 18. And in terms of cut off at the other end, that's also changed a lot. We used to have a hard and fast rule of uh, mid sixties to 70. And then now it's, they look more at the person's health um, because there are some 75 year olds that are in excellent health. And some of that they do tailor to the age of the recipient. We did have one couple, the recipient was in his late seventies and his wife was late sixties, but they were both in fantastic health. And they figured because he was older, her kidney even though she had an older kidney, it was going to be enough to keep him. And she had enough kidney to keep herself healthy. So it's all kind of case by case, but I would recommend anyone that's interested, just start with the phone call. You know, a lot of people think maybe, I don't think I'm going to be a, 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 be able to be a donor, but you don't know until you make that first call um, to see if, if you can actually donate. So I think it's always good to just check it out. Tanya, can you share what your recovery was like after you donated your kidney? 
Yeah. So it was a little nerve wracking because it was, you know, they would have their uh, logistics calls. And then um, since I was in New York and going to LabCorp and there was a time like there was possibly a 32 pair chain. And I remember I had to get like 15 vials of blood for them to send it back for testing and trying to walk through the New York City streets after taking all that blood out. I think it was like the vampire like walking, you know, but it's just interesting because that's what I was nervous about for how the recovery would be like feeling how it was for like the workup but it wasn't too bad as far as just like the drained feeling because I ended up in a seven pair chain and on my day uh you know I think got there the day before the surgery and uh, my veins were nervous. So I had to do the ultrasound to, for them to find my veins. Um, and I think I just like had the mindset of like, this is it. It's like game day. Like, don't even overthink it. Don't think, well, what about this? What about that? Blah, 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 blah. So I just like, I feel like that's a good mindset too, just to go in positive. And I think that probably helped me with my recovery is just like the um, I guess former athlete or just like the go-getter in me was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And like, somebody was like, oh, so like in the hallway, they're like, oh, so-and-so had their surgery today and they're already walking. I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do on my day <laughs> is I'll be walking on the same day that I had my surgery. So yeah, I went in, I think five in the morning and I think got out and was aware by 1 p.m., um, and I had a great surgeon too. Um, I think he's, he'd been at Ohio State for at least 25 years. And he's like, oh, we'll just take good, good care of you. And then on the day of when I came up, I, I just did one lap around the floor that I was on, just did, I think, one full lap and, and that was okay. And, um, and then I just because I don't like pain, I was nervous. I kept pushing my PCP ahead of time, but I forget that it's, I mean, I didn't know that it was timed and they're not going to let you over push to the point that you have too much morphine in your system. So I didn't really feel too much pain while I was in the hospital. I would just push, but then I found out I'm allergic to probably opiates because I was itching and irrit irritated and just everything was just loud and cold. So I feel badly for the nurses that first night because I just felt like I wasn't myself because I was like itchy and they had to keep coming in to check my blood pressure pressure in the middle of the night. And I was like, I just want to sleep. But it's like, you can't sleep. But um, then the next day they, you know, they took all the other stuff, like the, I think the catheter out and stuff like that. And then going to go home since I was um, coming from New York, the donor registry gave me a, a travel card that I could use. And my parents live in a two-story home. So to help me, I just stayed at a hotel that was close to our home because that was one level. And I, you know, so I wouldn't have to do too much, too many stairs or too much lifting of things. So my sister was there pretty much bouncing from the hotel to the house to support my mom with my dad and to support me as I needed to. And the biggest thing is like through college, I would teach aerobics and I think that's probably what helped me to be the candidate for the organ donation because I was already healthy and moving and with aerobics you know you do all these workouts and core workouts but I didn't realize how important that core is until it's like completely out of commission because I remember like trying to turn over to one side of the bed it's like I had to like use my arm just to turn around and it's like I didn't think that this little area was that important. But day by day, I stayed in Ohio for another month after the surgery so that I could be 
um, see my doctor for the 30 day checkup for him to look at the, the sutures and make sure I was good to go. Then when I went back to New York, I lived in Harlem with my sister in a five story walk up. And, and that's not optimal from taking the subway, going up the subway steps and then taking another set of steps. So thankfully my aunt was close by and she lives in a building with an elevator. So I just ended up staying with her. And then I came back to Columbus because after that surgery and just like the whole recovery process and with my dad, it just felt like I wanted to be back home to support and just like see if he needed more support afterwards. But he's he really has stayed diligent with taking care of his sugar level levels and his checking his blood pressure and maintaining his diet. So he didn't really need me after the surgery. He was like, you know, the surgery was pretty much the like freedom ticket for him. So, but I think that's been the main thing is just, um, I just trying to get back to my healthy life. And I think just taking care of myself, but it's just taken longer. I had to stop teaching aerobics afterwards because, you know, just that area in the stomach. But I, I've gotten to a better place now, so I'm going to try to get back to it. I think, yeah, that's the main thing is just like understanding how important that core is and just making sure that you're good to go with that piece. <laughs> what about you, Miriam? Since yours is pretty recent too. Yeah, um, it was it was an interesting experience because one of the um, surgeons that we work with at NKF had called me when he found out that I was doing the evaluation. He was like, listen, I'm just going to tell you that, you know, kind of moderate your expectations for how you're going to feel after, right after the surgery, because you're, you're really not going to feel well for a few days and, you know, don't push yourself too hard, you know, don't push yourself too hard and just, you know, don't expect to be like up and running right away. Right. And, and he's like, you're just not going to feel very good. And my experience was a little different than that. So actually, like when I woke up from the surgery, I was ecstatic. And I'm sure all the drugs I was on helped a lot. But like, I was so happy, so happy, even though I was in, I was in some pain, you know, like it felt like I, you know, was very crampy and yeah, it hurt, right? And then eventually they moved me up into a room and then like the anesthesia started to wear off and I was really nauseous and like, I was really nauseous all night and like couldn't keep food down. And it was such a weird experience because physically I did not feel good, but I was so happy that it didn't, it barely phased me. Yeah, you know, I was just like, here I am like eating jello and like, I can't keep jello down, but I'm, this is like the best day of my life. Um, and so for the first couple of days, I, that's how I felt. Like I was just really, 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 really happy. I only spent one night in the hospital. And then the next day I went to my parents' house. So they live kind of nearby. And so I could recover there and I stopped taking the painkillers right away. I was just on Tylenol and like, I felt fine and just was really happy. And I had a lot of visitors, like family, friends and friends stopping by to visit with me. So for the first week. I felt great, right? I mean, obviously like I had had a surgical procedure, so I didn't feel physically amazing. And yes, it was so hard to get in and out of bed. Like it took 20 <laughs> minutes to like roll and like get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Um, it was actually, it was a few weeks after the procedure when I started to feel not as great. When, you know, it was just like all the adrenaline of, of like doing the living donation was over. Like I had prepped for it for so long, just all that anticipation. And then 
you know, it was just kind of back to normal, except I couldn't go back to normal. So I couldn't go back to my regular exercise routine. Like I couldn't run. I couldn't work. I went back to work right away and I could not do it. I mean, I couldn't work a full day. Like my brain was all fuzzy. Like I couldn't pay attention. Like I just, I, my body and my mind were not ready for that. And so, and it was, you know, frustrating because I kept setting the bar too high and then I couldn't get to the bar and I felt horrible. And so it, it was actually like a period of adjustment to figure out, oh, this is going to take longer than I thought to recover. And I think because so many, I had read so many stories that were like 12 weeks, you know, you're going to be up and running again. That <laughs> did not work for me. You know, I was really fatigued, like that didn't work. And so it, I think, yeah, I just set the bar. My expectations for the recovery were, it, they were just very poorly, poorly <laughs> placed. Um, and so that's would be my advice to other living donors would be like, set the bar really low. And then when you, when you, when you get over the bar, you'll feel fabulous and then yeah. recover and like get back to everything sooner. But yeah, I was, I, I didn't, I, I didn't do it as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, now it's been a year and I'm, I'm back to normal. So I, I live with a small child, a four-year-old, he's my best friend's son. And so I'm sort of a, an aunt to him. And he uses me as like a jungle gym, right? So like he's four, so you know he wants to like knee you in the stomach and like wants you to like get on the bars at the playground. And for a long time, like I wasn't gonna flip over a bar at the playground. Like it hurt my stomach, you know, it hurt the incisions. And it, it was just recently that we were at the playground together, and I was like, oh, it doesn't hurt anymore, you know, they're not tender anymore because they're fully healed. And so, yeah, I think that would be my advice would be just to take it slow. That's true. And um, yeah, that part that you just said about like the whole fogginess of the brain, it's like, I, for, I like that's another piece too that I wasn't anticipating is just kind of the mental toll that it had on me. Like, I think, I think since I didn't tell too many people about it and then on top of that, it's like a very unique experience. I kind of felt like on my own sometimes. And then you don't want to go talk to anyone because it's like, oh, well, you chose to have, well, I don't know if anyone would have that reaction. Like you chose to have the surgery, but you know, it's still just kind of like you feel kind of on your own. So I think that's another thing I'm appreciative about. Like NKF now has this mentor program because at least you can talk to somebody who's been through it. So you don't really feel on your own. And I feel like with this podcast, even it's like now you can kind of, it gives you strength when you know that someone else has gone through it and they've gone through all the range of emotions because in life, we always like to paint everything just rosy and like, oh, and everything was perfect and <laughs> life went back and I, you know, I ended up losing weight and I look even better now than ever thanks to get, <laughs> donating my kidney. It was like, that's not realistic. So I think that's that's one piece I, I really appreciate. Because even for me, like it was, um, the time that I gave my kidney was also a tough time because my mother had just lost her brother back home in the Congo. And so it's like, we were going through that too. So it was just like a lot at one time. And we had like people come gather and there was like a little baby. And I always like to hold babies whenever they come. And I, I couldn't hold her. Cause I'm like, she's, 
she's nine pounds. It's a heavy baby. Like I'm not going to hold that baby. It's like five pounds is my threshold. And uh, like that baby actually came into my dream the night, like the next night, like, why didn't you hold me? And I was like, Oh man, I'm sorry. I couldn't tell anyone, but <laughs> donated a kidney and stuff. But yeah, it's just like that whole mental piece too. It's just like, like you recommended it's like, yeah, to give yourself that time after the surgery to just like get yourself completely right. Because I feel like we always push ourselves or we put this fake pressure on ourselves to do more than we're capable of when we should just give ourselves some grace to move forward. Um, how, how was your recovery, Jen? Mine was, again, not how I thought it was going to go. I'm, I was in, I was young. I was in my early thirties when I did it. And I, um, have been an endurance runner for a long time. And so I thought, oh, this is going to be no big deal. But I had picked up a case of bronchitis going into the surgery. And so I wasn't sure if I could even go through with it. And then the surgeon, when I went in for the pre-surgical, he said, as long as you're not running a fever, you should be okay. And so, so that part was fine, but I think I went in already a little bit debilitated and worn out. And so I had only ever had surgery one other time. And I had a horrible reaction to surgery when I was young. And so when I got out of the surgery, I thought it'd be the same thing. I thought I'd be like, you know, running around the unit and like, just be, I'd be out like the next day. And, um, I had a terrible reaction to the morphine and the anesthesia. I couldn't stop throwing up. And, um, finally I was like, I, I was so going to try and go home the next day, but I, I couldn't, um, in addition to, to not being able to even eat, I couldn't urinate. And so they had taken the Foley out and then they had to put it back in. Anyway, once they turned the morphine off, I felt like a million bucks and I have a pretty high pain threshold. So I could just switch to just plain old Tylenol. So I was there 48 hours by the second day I felt better. Um, but you know, the same sort of thing, my kids were two and four at the time. So I couldn't, my two-year-old was one of those, like, wanted to be picked up. And it's like, he was a big kid too. He was probably, I don't know, 35 pounds. So yeah, I had to have people, you know, there to help with that. And of course, because my husband was recovering, um, he couldn't pick up kids either. The one real highlight was that once I was able to get up and walk, I was able to go down and visit my husband. And that was very gratifying. And he actually felt better than me because he didn't have any reaction to the pain medication. So, so that was really nice to be able to go see him and, you know, have that see, okay, this is why I put up with this whole experience was for this. But I was, I thought I'd go back to work in two weeks and I stayed home for three because it just took me way longer. I think the biggest factor, I was so tired. I couldn't, I just, even after two weeks, I was so fatigued. I would recommend at least two weeks off. I, I probably, I needed three. I remember when I was working with donors, someone would say, well, I'd like to take four. I'm like, do it. Like <laughs> if you got the time off work, we'll write you for four. But you know, if, if you need more time, it's definitely not something, it's still surgery, you know, even though it's laparoscopic, it's still surgery. And uh, yeah, it was a while before I could get back to my normal activity level and the follow-up. Um, I don't know how your follow-up's been, but just, I have to you know, make sure I see the doctor once a year and get lab work and, um, all that kind of stuff. So, um, but yeah, so, so far it's been 17 years and kidneys are both kidneys are working great. So 
we're lucky. Awesome. Yeah, we're lucky in, in that regard. Yeah. That's yeah. the best. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, like you said, it's fun. It was great to walk down and see my dad because I think he, he went in after, you know, the recipient obviously goes in later yeah. on and the donor goes earlier in the day. But yeah, just seeing him like that's that's worth a million. I mean, it's worth a bajillion yeah. bucks or, you know, it's like just that going from like just kind of uncertainty and you know dialysis and then knowing like you never have to go through that again and yes. just like being able to eat what you want to eat like yes oh, it's it's a great it's yes. yeah i'm happy that we can at least we were at least in the same um section of the hospital because yeah. he was just yeah. like across the way so yeah, yeah it's great feeling <laughs> Yeah. I remember just seeing my husband and the color had come back to his face. He had been so anemic and just pale and he just looked healthy again, even though it was only like 48 hours, he looked like completely like the kidney started. And that's, that is the, the difference between living donation and um, deceased donation is sometimes those deceased donor kidneys, they take a little um, longer to perk up, but, um, I remember one of the surgeons would, would joke about when the minute they hooked up the living donor kidney, the urine just starts going right away. You know, it, it's, it, they just kicks in right away. So that is one of the benefits of living donation is there's no downtime. Like there is with the de deceased donation where the kidneys on ice for a while, this is just like from, you know, one warm body to the next. So Miriam, can you tell us a little bit about the um, legislative protections that are in place for living donors? Yeah, sure. So the first thing is that as a living donor, you should not pay anything to donate a kidney. So that's not a legislative protection per se, but just something I like to highlight for people. So if you're donating directly to a recipient, the recipient's insurance should cover all donor costs. And then if like what I did, if you're an anonymous or altruistic donor, then the Medicare program will pay your costs for the evaluation and the surgery and the workup and everything. So that's, that's sort of one thing to say. That's a major protection is that if you donate a kidney, you will not pay anything. Um, that's one. The second is there are a ton of different programs that can help living donors with some of the unreimbursed costs associated with living donation. So you can find all kinds of programs across the country. Some of them are very small, sort of just a, kind of a few people programs. The biggest one is called the National Living Donor Assistance Center, and that's a federal program that helps cover uh, what are called, yeah, what we call unreimbursed expenses associated with living donations. So that can be travel expenses, that can be um, like, you know, food, meals, expenses that, you know, you pay when you're in the hospital and, you know, you need to buy lunch. Um, and they actually also will cover lost wages. Um, so lost wages and then um, expenses if you need childcare or elder care. So that is a program that is really important. A lot of people use it. It is, there is an income eligibility threshold for both the recipient and the donor. But, you know, if you're thinking about being a living donor and you're interested in that program, you should definitely go ahead and apply and, you know, just see what, what sort of assistance you might be able to get. If you donate through the National Kidney Registry, which is increasingly common, there are also a whole slate of donor protections available through the National Kidney Registry. And they have another program that will 
you know, reimburse you for, for expenses associated with living donations. So I actually ended up not submitting my expenses to the national kidney registry. Cause I thought like, I'm so privileged and like, I don't need, you know, they can spend their money on somebody who needs it, you know, much more than me. But the main expense that I would have submitted to them if I had would have been for all the sweatpants that I bought at Target before I started <laughs> the because I mostly had like leggings during the pandemic. And, mm-hmm. and one of my friends was like, you will not want to wear leggings because it will dig into the incision yeah. and it will really hurt. Like you need mm-hmm. to get some like extra large sweatpants. <laughs> so I went to Target and filled up a cart with like sweatpants and pajamas. So. Um, but obviously I, again, have, I'm really, really privileged and many other people do have really significant expenses associated with living donation, particularly flights, um, and then the need for childcare and elder care and lost wages. That's one of the big programs. And then one of the National Kidney Foundation's big legislative priorities is called the Living Donor Protection Act. So this is a piece of legislation that actually prohibits an insurance company from denying life insurance or disability insurance for living donors. And it also prohibits them from raising the premiums for living donors. And then it also codifies in the law that an organ donation counts sort of under the Family and Medical um, Leave Act. So we're working on passing that law at the state level. And you know, every year we pass more and more state laws. And then we're also working on getting this passed at the federal level. So actually just yesterday we had our kidney patient summit where we have um, you know, hundreds of patients come and talk to their legislators on Capitol Hill. This year it was virtual. It's you know often in pre-pandemic times, it was we had a lot of people come to Washington, DC and go and visit their go and visit offices. But um, we got a whole bunch of new co-sponsors on the Living Donor Protection Act yesterday. So that was fabulous. And- yeah, so that's our main effort when it comes to living donation. But I think that there's a lot more that we could be doing. And I, personally, I would love to see sort of a more comprehensive program for helping living donors with out-of-pocket expenses, because I, I do often think about how lucky I was to be able to be a living donor and like what a privilege it is to be able to do that. And like, I really could only do it because like I have a job at the National Kidney Foundation. I could take up to six weeks off. Like I make enough money, you know, I only had to buy sweatpants. Like my family lives nearby. Like if I had children, I don't, they could have cared for my children. And, you know, if I had other dependents, they could have cared for them. And so it really is a privilege to be able to be a living donor. And I think more people would do it if it were in reach. And so I, I would love it if from a policy and a legislative standpoint, we were able to do more. Yeah. I worked in dialysis at the time. So, I mean, everyone was very understanding about, you know, me needing to take time off and I had short-term disability coverage and I had family nearby to watch my kids. And and my husband had a job where he had plenty of time off too as the recipient. And so it's, it was easy for easy, you know, financially anyway, for us to do it. But yeah, for other people that, you know, like with travel or, um, you know, even just hotels or whatnot. Yeah. That's a big, it can be a big, uh, big undertaking to do something that, you know, 
is really not benefiting you. It's benefiting whoever you're donating to. So yeah, that that really helped me because I took advantage of that. Um, I think the National Donor Registry gave me the Amex for buying my plane tickets, round trip at plane tickets, and then hotel accommodations, which I was able to do instead of staying at my parents' home. Because otherwise, I mean, I was early in my career. I didn't didn't have that much money to go up and down all over the place. So that yeah. was really helpful. So is there anything that you guys wish that you had known at the beginning of your donor journey that you've since learned from going through the process? I think just those anxieties that I had about the surgery and just like, you know, making it into such a bigger thing than it than it really well, I mean, it's still a big surgery, but just like just kind of calming my anxieties about it. And just also the way I, I see myself before and after the surgery, because I, I struggled with it. I think just because of that whole just on my own and, and wondering how others would view me and like, you know, seeing myself as unfortunately, I was harder on myself, like kind of saw myself as maybe less than because I was like, you know, without a kidney when it's really a, a beautiful um, surgery and it's a, it's a good process to go through. And then like what you're doing is to help somebody have a better life. And I think it's just like that whole mindset of it. Like, I think I was really tough on myself. I think both of you mentioned that just being um, people who like to be active and keep moving. And it's like, you just can't do all those things. And then like, I just was like, I oh, can't do anything. It's like, then you do the self pile on and it's like, just giving myself grace. Also, anyone who's considering living donation, remember you are a human, you're not a robot. So it's like as humans, we, our body lets us know what we need. And if your body needs rest, give your body rest. If your body is like, I can't turn over by myself or like, oh, well, Joe gave his kidney and two weeks later, he was already doing this, this and that. Like it, it doesn't help you because we're all unique, different individuals. Our body's going to react differently and it's going to take time. And also just speak up, like don't be scared to speak up and ask the questions. And like the transplant centers I've heard like from, from people who are in the early process through this mentor program and then people who have already donated, it seems consistent that all transplant centers are really there from you from the t from your head all the way down to your feet like every single body part of you that you have questions about like what about if i want to have children in the future they will have an answer for that if you're like well you know i'm nervous about this this and that i have this anxiety they will have an answer for that so it's like just don't don't feel bad about asking questions because sometimes we as humans we just don't want to ask because you're like oh it's a dumb question but it's not because it's it will help you out in the long run so i think those are the two biggest things is just don't be scared to ask the questions ask for help and then also give yourself enough grace to know like it might be a different process for me for my recovery because like yeah the first day i was walking around but then like four days later i was like oh i can't move so it just it just all depends. So that's, that's the biggest thing for me. What, what about you, Jen? Um, I, you know, I would have to echo a lot of what you said. I mean, I, I think the people that tend to be donors tend to be people that, you know, unlike recipients, if to be a donor, you have to be in good health and usually donors are active. They're either working or they've got lots of hobbies or, you know, whatever. So I think it's people that are, you know, for some 
donors, that's the first time they've ever gone to surgery. They have no idea what it's going to be like. So I think, again, don't try and be a hero. Like, take time. Give yourself a lot of time to rest and recover. I would always say to, to potential donors, we had a whole donor orientation process where we did like a class where people would come and meet with a, a, a someone that had been a donor and then ask questions and all that. I would always just encourage people, there really are no dumb questions. Like any weird, same thing. Like, can I have children? You know, are there foods I have to avoid? How often do I go to the doctor? Like what, is, you know, is this going to affect my, lang- my uh, longevity? I mean, any of those questions you need to ask. And the, again, the transplant center will always be open to you even if it's 10, 15 years down the road, you know, we would have, we would sometimes have donors come back years down the road because they'd had some kind of complication and they just wanted to talk with the surgeons or, you know, so I think again, yeah, open lines of communication. And, you know, I think, I guess I got to say too, from the flip side, it's not living donation is not for everybody. And so also if you decide it's not something you can do, or you get ruled out to be a donor, that is no reflection on you. I think one of the hardest things I had to do as the living donor coordinator or someone that did living donor evaluations is to counsel people when they got ruled out. For a lot of people, that was terribly crushing. But, you know, I know there's, for as many donors as there are, there's twice as many that get ruled out. And I always tell people, you tried. You know, I can't donate blood anymore because I'm chronically anemic. So not from the the donation, just a baseline thing. And so I just don't beat myself up on not being able to donate blood. So I think whatever the outcome is, know that you did the best you, you could do. And if that means you weren't able to be a donor, I think people have to to love themselves for that as well. So what about you, Miriam? Yeah, no, that same, same thing. (laughs) It's just let yourself, let yourself recover, you know, as long as it takes and um, don't go back to work right away. And um, yeah, I I guess just, um, I found it really difficult after I donated, like a lot of people wanted to like congratulate me and wanted to like spoil me. And I was really uncomfortable with that. But I think that's just a lesson that you have to learn in life is that like you have to let people love you. And um, so that's always what I tell people when they ask about donation is like, if you're going to do it, like let yourself be spoiled and um, like let let people love you for for that act. And, you know, even if you can't be a living donor, it's, um, you know, it's really meaningful that, you know, you you step up to want to do that. And that's really special too. Uh, one question I used to always get from people when I would do living donor donations, do you feel any differently having donated a kidney? Not really. I feel like I'm the same Tanya that I've always been, you know? I mean, just when, you know, you look at your stomach, you see the two little scars and then the one scar at the bottom. And that's like kind of the reminder. But other than that, um, I think because I think the donation part doesn't define our personalities like it seems all three of us that's not what has defined our personality so that's probably why it's like I feel I feel the same same way it's like I kind of you know just gave my dad something (laughs) hey here you go here you can have my last piece of pie or something like that you know it's like then I moved on with it yeah (laughs) yeah I feel totally the same I I think it's interesting to see how like and it's all it's all okay, but people just respond to being a living donor differently. And I know some people where they like internalize that as a really important part of their identity. And that's super cool. And, you know, good. That's great for them. 
that's not how I experienced it, which is just like, that's just my experience was I, I really forget, like yeah. I forget that I did this. And <laughs> even sometimes like I'll be in a meeting for NKF where like my being a living donor is highly relevant. Like when we do these advocacy days or like if we're in a meeting about right, like protections for living donors and I'll introduce myself and be like, I'm Miriam Godwin. I'm the director of health policy for the National Kidney Foundation. And then someone will chime in and be like, she's a living donor. She's a living donor. <laughs> yeah. So I think people just respond differently, but um, I feel completely the same. Yeah. I mean, I forget, especially now that I'm not directly in the transplant world like I was. Now I'm tendential to it, but it is kind of funny in that way. Any last thoughts before we conclude? I mean, I guess it's the one thing Miriam said, let people love you. Um, I eat all the ice cream you want because my friends brought me lots of Jenny's ice cream and Junior's cheesecake. So that's <laughs> the time. Really yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that's the time to do it. <laughs> yes. Agreed. Well, this Agreed. Was really fun. It was really fun chatting right. with both of well, you today. Right. <laughs> yes, it was great. It was great to talk about a subject I think we're all yeah, uh, close yeah, to our hearts. So. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Thank right, you. Thanks. NCAP is fortunate to have so many dedicated team members, but there are a few of us who truly exemplify our mission. One of them is Amy Hewitt, Executive Director serving Northern California and the Pacific Northwest, who recently became a living donor. Amy, thank you so much for your gift of life. We are truly honored to have you. Thank you for listening. Make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also email us directly with your comments and suggestions at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. We hope you will join us next time. And from all of us at NKF, we wish you good health.